I substituted hustle for talent and the sure knowledge that if I did not want it more than my opponent, he would defeat and humiliate me with those gifts that nature denied me. What I had was a powerful will and a fiery competitiveness and the burning desire to be a great player in the Southern Conference, when there was not even the slightest chance I could be a memorable one. I found myself constantly downsizing my dreams as a basketball player as my career was train-wrecked by mediocrity. But make no mistake, I desired greatness for myself and longed to be the best point guard who ever played the game. From my ninth to my twenty-first year, I lived with a basketball in my hand, driving my mother crazy by throwing up imaginary jump shots in every room of the house. For years, I would try to take three hundred jump shots a day to improve my weakness as an outside shooter. I never left the court in my life after practice without making my last shot. This was not a superstition. This was a discipline. The lessons I learned while playing basketball for the Citadel Bulldogs from 1963 to 1967 have proven priceless to me as both a writer and a man. I have a sense of fair play and sportsmanship. My work ethic is credible and you can count on me in the clutch. When given an assignment, I carry it out to completion. My five senses lit up in concentration. I believe with all my heart that athletics is one of the finest preparations for most of the intricacies and darknesses a human life can throw at you. Athletics provides some of the richest fields of both metaphor and cliché to measure our lives against the intrusions and aggressions of other people. Basketball forced me to deal head-on with my inadequacies and terrors with no room or tolerance for evasion. Though it was a long process, I learned to honor myself for what I accomplished in a sport where I was overmatched and out of my league. I never once approached greatness, but toward the end of my career, I was always in the game. Because I grew up a complete stranger to myself, I did not even seem to catch a glimpse of a determined young man who developed in secret during college. I do not recognize the intense stranger who stares back at me in photographs faded and frayed around the edges. My coaches throughout my youth all approved of me because my attitude was upbeat and fiery, my enthusiasm contagious, and I gave everything I had. I liked that part of me also, but had no idea where it came from. As a boy, I had constructed a shell for myself so impenetrable that I have been trying to write my way out of it for over thirty years, and even now I fear I have barely cracked its veneer. It is as rouged and polished and burnished as the specialized glass of telescopes, and it kept me hidden from the appraising eyes of the outside world long into manhood. But most of all, it kept me hidden and safe from myself. No outsider I have ever met has struck me with the strangeness I encounter when I try to discover the deepest mysteries of the boy I once was. Several times in my life I have gone crazy, and I could not even begin to tell you why. The sadness collapses me from the inside out, and I have to follow the thing through until it finishes with me. It never happened to me when I was playing basketball, because basketball was the only thing that granted me a complete and sublime congruence and oneness with the world. I found the joy unrecapturable beyond the realm of speech or language, and I lost myself in the pure, dazzling majesty of my sweet, swift game. After a Citadel baseball game at West Virginia, where I hit a double, I came to a decision that would change my life. I was reading in the back of a station wagon that trailed two other cars full of sleeping baseball players, watching the moonlight snake-handle the mountain river. The moon felt different to me in the mountains as though my South traded it in for a different model when it reached the high country. Two songs came on the radio, and I can hear them now as I write this. The river and the music and the moon came together in the mountains of West Virginia as the mamas and the papas sang Monday, Monday. 
Sarah Vaughn followed, singing a song that began with the words, How Gentle is the Rain. I'd never heard Sarah Vaughn sing before and rarely heard a voice that affected me like hers. Coming down that mountain, the radio playing songs perfect for that light-dazzled moment and the boys sleeping around me, I promised myself I would try to become a writer. Though I did not know what one was or how they lived or how to go about being one, it was what my mother had always wanted me to become but I never realized how powerful a mother's dream could be to a dutiful, even worshipful son. I made a secret pact with myself in the dark. The music and river had awakened something asleep, and I felt the writer stirring inside me for the first time. Once I woke him, I was never able to put him back to sleep in the porches of consciousness. In terror at what I had promised, I looked at the moon out of the back window as I watched West Virginia slip from my life forever. During that same baseball season... I got my chance to share that small craft epiphany I had experienced in the mountains. After a long road trip playing the small colleges of Georgia, the team was returning to Charleston at night. Chowport was driving, and I was riding in the front seat, which was something of a rarity. Conroy, he once asked me, how come you got all the goddamn answers and no goddamn hits? Chowport was the best coach I ever had, and his love of his boys poured out of him the way it always does with the best of the breed. On this night, Coach Hort turned serious and asked us what we planned to do for a living after graduation. His roll call echoed through the car. John Worley would become the lawyer he is today in Richmond, Virginia. Holly Keller would take over his father's piano store in Orlando, Florida. Mike Steele would enter the Army and rise higher and faster than anyone in my class. Today, he's a three-star general commanding the armies of the Pacific in Hawaii. What are you going to do, Conroy? Chalport asked. Overthrow the elected government of the United States and all our allies? I'm going to be a writer, coach, I said. I still hear the laughter in that car. No, no, come on, Conroy, you got to think about making a living. What are you really going to do? I'm going to write books, I said. Again, the laughter settled in around me. On that flat Georgia road, heading toward the Savannah River and the South Carolina line, I had suffered for my art for the first time. And red-faced... I joined in the mirth and hoopla at my own expense. It was my first moment of complete honesty at the Citadel, and it began my happiest year ever. As a senior private in 4th Battalion in Romeo Company, I became untouchable and proud. The boys who had tormented me as a plebe had all left campus to play out their mediocre and mean-spirited lives. No longer did my blood boil when I passed some minor league sadist on the way to the library. I grew relaxed as a cadet for the first time, and almost fell to my knees in gratitude to my college for being the first place I had ever spent four uninterrupted years. Since my birth, I had moved twenty-three times, and the citadel and the hauntingly beautiful city of Charleston had given me a sense of security and belongingness I had never known before. As an English major, my job and purpose in life was to read the greatest books ever written by the most fabulous and imaginative writers. I felt a sense of bedazzled guilt that I loved my courses and teachers so much and could not wait to get to my classes each morning. It was the year I began to catch small glimpses of the man I was becoming, moments when all the disfigurements and odd bafflements of my hidden childhood began to reveal themselves in unfocused glances into my nature. In this last year I would play organized basketball, I came into my own as a player, not because of my team's success, but because of its crushing disappointments and failures. The season turned out to be a disaster for all concerned, except for me. I played the best basketball I have ever played, 
in the last half of what all remember as a jinxed and unprovidential season. When I left the Citadel, I did not keep up with a single teammate from my losing season. It is the winners who have reunions, who stay in touch and whose wives and children know each other, and gather together on those numerous occasions when their husbands and fathers try to recapture the uncommon glory they once felt when they were young athletes. The losing teams of the world disband without fanfare or any sense of regret. The names and faces of our teammates nick us like razors and recall moments of failure, disillusionment, disgrace. Losing tears along the seam of your own image of yourself. It is a mark of shame that causes internal injury but no visible damage. The stigmata of that long-ago season have hurt me. I had let my team and my school down by not being good enough. As a basketball player, I always felt like a fraud, and that same feeling has followed me into the riding life. Yet I wish to be clear. I have loved nothing on this earth as I did the sport of basketball. I love to break up a full-court press as much as anyone who has ever lived and played the game, black or white, male or female, in the shades of Spanish moss beneath the royal heat and sunshine of Dixie. I would not sell my soul to be playing college ball somewhere in this country tonight, but I would give it long and serious consideration. It was only when I had to give up basketball that I began to attract the unfavorable attention of the rest of the world. Basketball provided a legitimate physical outlet for all the violence and rage and sadness I later brought to the writing table. The game kept me from facing the ruined boy who played basketball instead of killing his father. It was also the main language that allowed father and son to talk to each other. If not for sports, I do not think my father ever would have talked to me. I would not have returned to this year of 1966 if I had not experienced one of those life-changing encounters on the road that rise up periodically to let us know that fate remains inexorable in its utter strangeness and its capacity for astonishment. At a bookstore called Books and Company near Dayton, Ohio, during my long tour for beach music, the first novel I had published in nine years, I looked up after signing my last autograph, and I saw a man looking uncomfortable among the new novels published that season. Though I had not seen John DeBross in nearly thirty years, I recognized him immediately and felt that rush of pleasure one gets when encountering a part of the past that seemed irretrievably lost. When we had played together on the Citadel basketball team, John had always looked upon my love of reading as a form of mental illness. It amazed him I read books for pleasure and not because professors made me. I had once coveted and admired John DeBross's game. I had the capacity to hero-worship all the boys who could play basketball better than I could, and my house of worship was large indeed. John DeBross was a player who started every game on every team he had ever played on, and he could shoot a basketball as well as the good ones. He was as serious as calculus and played basketball with the same devotion that monks often display at lauds or matins. I was nearing my fiftieth birthday when John DeBross emerged from his own life and the fevers and agues of his own time in Ohio to find me. I rose up from the signing table to approach him, and we embraced. Ever been in a bookstore before, DeBross? Yeah, once, Conroy, I was lost, John said. Hey, my wife and kids don't think I know you. They think I made it all up. Could you come over to my house to meet them? John drove me toward his house in his huge van, very Ohio to me. We talked easily about guys we had known at the Citadel, but my information was fresher and far more up-to-date since Citadel men have always bought far more of my books than any other single group. 
and I had run into scores of them on the beach music tour. Then John's conversation moved back toward memory and basketball. He had spent his whole life as a basketball coach, teacher, and principal in the Dayton area near his hometown of Piqua, Ohio. An educator of that most solid sort, the ones who make for consistency and excellence in our nation's public schools, he embodied the Ohio virtues. His life was smooth and cautious, and his prose was boilerplate. Put a man like John DeBrose on guard duty, and he would issue a challenge to everything that went bump in the night. Listening to him talk, it became clear to me that his true love was coaching, because his voice changed timbre when he told me about teams he had coached to championship seasons. The same charged-up intensity I used to observe in John's face during the fury of games, I now saw behind the wheel of his van as he described the high and low points of his career. Then he looked at me and said, I was a lot better than you, Conroy. It was a statement of fact in the world of athletics, not braggadocio. You couldn't shoot. The truth of this remark stung me, hurtful as a handful of wasps. Other people noted that. I made very few All-American teams those years. But you got after it, John said. You went all out. Thanks. I've always told my players and coaches that something used to happen between us every practice, Conroy. Do you remember? Something stirred, then struck a huge chord of memory, and I got that slight shiver that happens when I catch a glimpse of a part of my past that has slipped out of sight when the guards would split up from the forwards and centers and we would go to the opposite court to do drills, John said. I remember. I love that. It always happened when you and I went one-on-one -on -one together, you guarding me, me guarding you. There was nothing like it. You liked it because you were so much better than me. No, he said. We went after each other like no two other players on the team. Not a word was spoken, no trash talking, just pure respect. The whole atmosphere in that gym changed. I brought out the best in you. You brought out the best in me. Man, it was something. You beat me a lot more than I beat you, I said, if memory serves me correctly. Damn right I did, he said, laughing in the darkness as we drove down a charmless avenue that could have cut through any city in America. But you gave it all you had, fought all the way. I think about that team we played on, that shitty season. If we just had a banger, some tough guy on the boards... As it was, we only had one hard-nosed son of a bitch on the team, and we needed about three or four more really tough guys. Who was the hard-nosed guy, I asked. John DeBrose looked at me strangely, then said, It was you, Conroy. Who the hell else could it have been? I spent several pleasurable moments basking in the sunshine of those sweet words and sitting in silence. The first minute in my life I was aware that John DeBrose thought I was hard-nosed. He could not have made me happier if he told me.